gathered here tonight to pay tribute to our Lord and money unto me. There's danger to this land you call your own And you watch them build the war machines right beside your home And you tell me that you're ready to go marching to the war Oh, I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? Before you pack your rifle and sail across the sea Just think upon the southern part of land that you call free Oh, there's many kinds of slavery, and we found many more. Yes, I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? And before you walk out on your job and answer to the call, just think about the millions who have no job at all. And the men who wait for handouts with their eyes upon the floor. I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? Turn on your TV, turn it on so loud And watch the fool is smiling there and tell me that you're proud And listen to your radio, the noise it starts to pour Oh, I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? Read your morning papers, read every single line And tell me if you can believe that simple world you find Read every slanted word till your eyes are getting sore I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? Unlisten to your leaders, the ones that won the race As they stand right there before you and lie into your face if you ever try to buy them, you know what they stand for. I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? 
Put a ragged clothes upon your back and sleep upon the ground. And tell police about your rights as they drag you down. And ask them as they lead you to some deserted door. Yes, I know you're set for fighting, but what are you fighting for? But the hardest thing I'll ask you, if you will only try, is take your children by their hands and look into their eyes. And there you'll see the answer you should have seen before. If you'll win the wars at home, there'll be no fighting anymore. review with roman today it's friday january 3rd 2020 thanks so much for tuning in we are broadcasting live from mutiny radio we're in san francisco we're on ohlone land and one way to learn more about the land that we're on is if you go to ramitush.com and that's r-a-m-a-y-t-u-s-h.com you can learn about the history of the land and i was planning on uh 
playing more records on the show. We've got two great record players here. I appreciate vinyl. And so I was I went to the library this week and picked up a couple albums and it's like, oh, I'll play some vinyl. And then uh it looks like we're heading into World War Three. So ended up starting with uh, a few anti-war songs that I've played on the show before, at least the first two. And unfor- I mean, it's so disturbing how they don't seem to age. I mean, you can ch- exchange the names and some of the folks they call out. However, the attitudes are the same. And this... Uh, it's fucking disgusting is what it is. So I'll be playing some more anti-war songs throughout the program. And I will... I picked up the debut album from the B-52s, which I thought would be a good way to start the year. So I I will see about playing at least one song from the album, maybe two, later on. But I did feel like I wanted to at least comment musically on the situation that's happening. And I thought back to 2003 and just how much how many anti-war protests there were. I was in New York at the time. I remember the streets were flooded. Hundreds of thousands, at the very least, of people were there. And again, it's the majority of the world does not want this to happen. And no matter what we do, the powers that be, they don't care. They want to still start shit. And they're not the ones who suffer for it. And it's fucking... Exhausting, and this comes from a very I come from a very privileged place where I'm not the one who's being attacked right now. <sighs> Australia is on fire. I believe there's a big flooding. Flooding, I think, in Indonesia. <sighs> the wealth disparity continues to grow. Uh, yeah, it, it's a pretty fucking scary time. I will be reading some news articles throughout the program, and I also wanted to share more music and also share action items that folks can take, because it is times like these. I mean, I feel like pretty much always it does feel, if one is paying attention to what's happening and also remembering to question and ignore and push back against the narrative by corporate media that is, has always been very pro-war and to share the, a, a narrative for the people. And so I'm wanting to promote those voices and I'll do what I can over the next couple hours to put the word out there. I was on, I've been on Twitter a lot lately because I've been off Facebook and I know there, Twitter has its issues, of course. However, reading articles and hearing perspectives from folks who are anti-war is so refreshing and validating, and it's shocking how one has to kind of seek it out in a way. And it's not that there aren't a lot of us, it's that many of us don't have access to sharing our opinions. And with the newspapers always being pro-war, it's important to push back against that. (sighs) It's... It's disgusting. It really is. And it's frightening. <sighs> I'm going to be sighing a lot. I have a, I have a feeling I'll be sighing a lot. And it's, it's not to take away from a lot of the organizing that is happening. Um, 
but just needs a comment on it. I did want to share, I did mention action items, and that's one thing that has made me feel better throughout the years when I'm feeling particularly depressed. One thing that's super helpful is helping other people. Uh, however that looks, it's reaching out to help somebody else. That always works. And something else is, is taking action, especially politically. And I do feel like helping one another is a form of taking action as well. There is a Twitter feed that I follow, uh, at Vets About Face, and it's uh, Veterans Against the War, and a little, you can find more information on their website, aboutfaceveterans.org, and it makes me think also about, there's this great documentary called Sir No Sir, that's about Vietnam veterans, or folks, troops in, who are in Vietnam who had a resistance and like fought back and refused to fight. And I saw it many years ago, and I just got it out from the library again because I wanted to see it again. And I feel like that's a big thing is a way for troops and veterans to organize and refuse to fight. And I wanted to share that, and perhaps I will play a clip from that in the program. It's also free, I believe, online. I watched it online for free many years ago, and it might still be available. So... Didn't quite prepare so much today. However, I have a lot of ideas of things I want to share with all you listeners out there. So I'll I'll get what I can. Okay. So moving along, I I promise I didn't promise anything. I never promised anything. I did mention action items, so I'm going to get to that. I'm pulling up the information right now, and the Answer Coalition has shared many events that are happening around the world, anti-war protests that are happening on Saturday, which would be tomorrow, January 4th. Starting off the, uh, starting off the new year, continuing to protest. I'm also waking up here a bit. I've had a bit of a, a sore throat, so I've been drinking a lot of tea, so I'm not quite as caffeinated as I usually am. And that's all right. There's a... Let's see here... Moving along. Also, I mean, this is just really bad news, is that even in New York, they've been talking about uh, protecting New York City locations from Iran and they say terrorist allies. And in doing so, it's seen as a preemptive attack on anti-war protests. When you, add, when you add more military and more police in, they have notoriously been against protests. And it's just a full-on militarization, and it doesn't keep anybody safe. So here are the list. It took me a while to get to this. You can find it also at answercoalition.org. All Out, Saturday, January 4th, National Day of Action. And I'll read the statement from Answer Coalition. The Trump administration and Pentagon have moved to start a war with Iran by assassinating Qasem Soleimani, a top military leader of that country. If Iran openly assassinated a top U.S. general and bragged about it, there is no question that the United States would 
initiate full-scale war. Trump and the Pentagon have acted illegally and in violation of the Constitution, the War Powers Act, and international law. And I'm going to say, even besides the fact that it's illegal, like it's not moral. And I wish the conversation would would go more towards what's the what is moral and ethical and the right thing to do as opposed to simply saying, oh, well, it's illegal. I mean, there's a lot of illegal things that are actually good and helpful. There are certain drugs, for instance, that are classified as illegal that actually save people's lives. So I think steering away from the idea of, because some, sometimes there are things that are illegal or, or good, and sometimes there are things that are legal that are bad. There are landlords that can, uh, I'm thinking of uh, the criminalization of poverty in particular and how many laws there are in the books here in California where it's legal for cops and Department of Public Works to harass unhoused folks. And it, that somehow is is legal. And folks have been fighting against that. However, the idea that something's legal doesn't make it right. That's a very long way, roundabout way of putting it. And I'll go back to this. And just wanted to add my, my two cents in there. The targeted assassination and murder of a central leader of Iran is designed to initiate a new war unless the people of the United States rise up and stop it. This war will engulf the whole region and could quickly turn into a global conflict of unpredictable scope and potentially the gravest consequences. The Pentagon High Command is recklessly bragging about this illegal targeted assassination in the most crude and false manner. This strike was aimed at deterring future Iranian attack plans, stated the lying generals. They know that the objective of the strike is just the opposite. They want a war with Iran, a country of more than 80 million people. Trump wants it too because he thinks it will guarantee his re-election in 2020. For all who believe in peace, for all who are opposed to yet another catastrophic war, now is the time to take action. On Saturday, January 4th, in cities across the country, there will be protests against a new war in the Middle East and calling for the withdrawal of all U.S. troops and bases in the region. Uh, so there's a partial list right now of endorsers, including Answer Coalition, Code Pink, Popular Resistance, Veterans for Peace, World Beyond War, Voices for Creative Nonviolence, American-Iranian Friendship Committee, United Anti-War Coalition, Dorothy Day Catholic Worker in D.C., Minnesota Peace Action, Labor for Palestine, Jews for Palestinian Right of Return, Pierre Labossiere, Haiti Action Network, Sam Samodun, Palestinian Prisoners Solidarity Network, Reverend Graylin Hagler, Senior Minister, Plymouth Congregational Church in Washington, D.C., Maine WTR Resource Center, Hilton Head for Peace. Initiators for this call include the Answer Coalition, Code Pink, Popular Resistance, World Beyond War, and many other anti-war and peace organizations. If you want to add your name as an endorser, they have a link that you can click on. Demonstrations will take place on Saturday, January 4th in the following cities. At the White House in D.C., 12 noon. Chicago, Illinois, 12 noon at Trump Tower. Los Angeles, and that's initiated by Answer Chicago. Los Angeles, California, 1 p.m. at Pershing Square, initiated by Answer 
Los Angeles, New York City, 11 a.m. at Times Square, initiated by Answer New York, San Francisco, here in San Francisco, noon at Powell and Market, and that's initiated by Answer San Francisco, Miami, Florida, 1 p.m. at Torch of Friendship, 301 Biscayne Boulevard, initiated by Code Pink, Berlin, Germany, 1 p.m. at Brandenburger Tour, um, slash Pariser Plots. Albuquerque, New Mexico, 2 p.m. at Kirtland Air Force Base, San Mateo and Gibson Boulevard, initiated by Answer New Mexico. Arlington, Massachusetts, 12 noon at Broadway Plaza, Mass Ave and Medford Street, initiated by Arlington United for Justice with Peace. Seattle, Washington, 2 p.m. at Westlake Park, initiated by Answer Seattle. Minneapolis, Minnesota, 1 p.m. at Mayday Plaza, initiated by Minnesota Peace Action Coalition. Atlanta, Georgia, 3 p.m. at Little Five Points, initiated by Answer Atlanta. New Haven, Connecticut, 3 p.m. Sunday, January 5th, at Church and Chapel Street, initiated by Answer Connecticut. Portland, Maine, 12 noon at Congress Square Park, initiated by Peace Action, Maine. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 12 noon at Shenley Plaza, initiated by Answer Pittsburgh. Denver, Colorado, 2 p.m. at Colorado State Capitol Building, initiated by Answer Colorado. Boston, Massachusetts, 2 p.m. at Park Street MBTA Station. Sacramento, California, 4 p.m. at Capitol Park. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 12 noon at City Hall, 15th and Market Street. Columbia, South Carolina, 12 noon at the South Carolina State House. San Diego, California, 2 p.m. at the Federal Court Building. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 12 noon at Lancaster County Prison. Austin, Texas, 11 a.m. at Austin City Hall. Boulder, Colorado, 11 a.m. at Broadway and Canyon. Birmingham, Alabama, 5 p.m. at Five Points South. Cleveland, Ohio, 12 noon at Market Square. El Paso, Texas, 12 noon Friday, January 3rd. Um, which is happening now at the U.S. Federal Courthouse, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 2 p.m. at Allen County Courthouse Green, Ithaca, New York, 10 a.m. at corner of Clinton and Meadow Streets by CVS, Northampton, Massachusetts, 11 a.m. in front of the courthouse on Main Street, San Antonio, Texas, 1 p.m. Sunday, January 5th at the overpass on Walters and 35 on the way to Fort Sam Houston. Santa Monica, California, 2 p.m. at the Santa Monica Promenade. Hopewell, New Jersey, 12 p.m. They don't have a location listed. Davis, California, 11 a.m. at B and 5th Streets. State College, Pennsylvania, 12 noon at Allen Street Gates. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 12 noon at the intersection of 27th and Oklahoma. Madison, Wisconsin, 12 noon at the State Capitol. Boise, Idaho, 5 p.m. at Boise City Hall. Las Vegas, Nevada, 10 a.m. at Las Vegas Federal Courthouse, San Jose, California, 3 p.m. at 4th and Santa Clara, Fayetteville, Arkansas, 11 a.m. at Washington County Courthouse, Phoenix, Arizona, 12 noon at Esplanade Center, Dallas, Texas, 3 p.m. at Dealey Plaza, Salt Lake City, Utah, 2 p.m. at Wallace F. Bennett Federal Building, Memphis, Tennessee, 5.30 p.m. today, Friday, January 3rd at the Gazebo at the Cooper Young Intersection, Kennewick, Washington, 1 p.m. at the corner of North Columbia Center Boulevard and West Kinault. And finally, Cincinnati, Ohio, 12 noon at Fountain Square. And they also say to have an event organized in your city listed above. They provide a link. And again, you can find this at answercoalition.org. So there are a lot of rallies happening. And again, this is just one website that has shared this. So I'd imagine there's much more that's happening. <coughs> ah, excuse me, around the country and around the world. 
Oh, goodness, goodness gracious. There's a whole list um, of, there's whole, there's like anti-war, there's so many anti-war songs out there, and I wanted to play some new ones, and on Wikipedia, they happen to have, just, oh, just to show how many folks are, and artists have been anti-war throughout the ages, they have a list um, per, uh, per war, or per con- conflict, as they're sometimes called, even though they're fucking wars, and it's just, ridiculous the last one i played the first part of the quality wasn't so great and that was my fault i didn't quite find a i was trying to do it quickly and that was billy bragg's the price of oil and before that the song i've played on the show quite a lot was phil oaks's uh what are you fighting for and then before that dead kennedy's moral majority with the line ready to go to war with or without iran and that's just uh, uh, uh. Uh, frustrated. All right, I'm gonna find some more music to play. Um, there's definitely some more news that's happening, and also I'm gonna take it easy. So here's a song I haven't heard before, and I thought I would share it here. And it's from Ice T, and it's called "You Should Have Killed Me Last Year." And we'll be back after a few more songs. January 15th, 1991. Before I go, I'd like to say a few things. This album was completed on January 15th, 1991. By now, the war has probably started and a whole bunch of people have probably died out there in the desert over some bullshit. There's a war going on right now in my neighborhood, but I can't really determine which one's worse. I think the one that we're all fighting is fucked up, and that's the war inside our brains, you know? But, uh... I feel bad about all the brothers and sisters getting pulled right out of the neighborhoods, all the cities and small towns in America to go over there and fight for that bullshit that most of them don't really have anything to do with. So I got to send peace out to them. Also peace out to all my homies in jail, brothers that are dead, locked up right here on earth. Talking about the brothers in Soledad, San Quentin, all the way up to Pelicans Bay, Tracy, Chino and all my homeboys out there in the East Coast lockdown facilities. I'm talking about Clinton, Rikers, Joliet. You know, every prison in the whole fucking world, man. That's like, you know, that's all bullshit, you know? They say slavery has been abolished except for the convicted felon. Y'all need to think about that. That lets you know what the fucking Constitution really is about, you know? A lot of my homeboys have been locked down my whole entire career, and that's some bullshit. So for them, from the Rhyme Syndicate Nice Tea, I'd like to send this special shout out. Fuck the police, fuck the FBI, fuck the DEA, fuck the CIA, fuck Tipper Gore, Bush, and his crippled bitch. This is Ice T. I'm out of here. Told you, you should have killed me last year.
I mean, there's so many examples of artists who have spoken out, either in their art or, or just as citizens. I mean, it's possible to speak out in your art, and Joseph Heller did it, and Kurt Vonnegut did it in, in Slaughterhouse-Five. Uh, again, you know, here's the good war, but Kurt Vonnegut writes about the bombing of Dresden in which perhaps 100,000 civilians talk about killing innocent people. 100,000 people die as a result of the British and American bombing raids over Dresden. Now, to write about that uh, and denounce it in nonfiction would have been very, very difficult, uh, again, in that glow of the greatest generation in World War II, a glow which they keep, they keep bringing back to us uh, to make any war that we're going through ennobled by its connection with World War II. But Vonnegut could write fiction about the bombing of Dresden, and a fiction, of course, which was, which was very, very true. During the Vietnam War, artists spoke out in different ways against the war. Robert Lowell, the poet, was invited uh, to the White House, and uh, he refused to come. Arthur Miller, the playwright, uh, was invited to the White House, and he sent a telegram to the White House. The telegram said, when the guns boom, the arts die. The singer, Eartha Kitt, was invited to the Rose Garden. <laughs> You've never been to the Rose Garden of the White House? <laughs> there was a sort of, uh, it was one of those lovely social events taking place during the Vietnam War. And Eartha Kitt, who was just supposed to be a singer, just an artist, not paying any attention to the world, raised her voice and said, why are we in Vietnam? It was shocking. Uh, an artist was not supposed to do that. But artists were doing all sorts of things at that time uh, to show that they were citizens and they were thinking outside the boundaries, that they were tra transcending the given wisdom. There was a, an artist named Seymour Chwast who did a poster which was reproduced and reproduced and reproduced all over. It was a very simple poster. And just said, war is good for business. Invest your son. There's great music during the, that was brought forth during the Vietnam era by artists who insisted on not just uh, not just being artists and musicians, but who were so moved by what was going on in the world they had to say something. And so uh, Bob Dylan uh, wrote his song, Masters of War. I'll just read a little of it. I'm certainly not going to sing it. <laughs> Come you masters of war, you that build the big guns, you that build the death planes, you that build all the bombs, you that hide behind walls, you that hide behind desks, I just want you to know I can see through your masks. You that never done nothing but build to destroy, you play with my world like it's your little toy. You put a gun in my hand and you hide from my eyes and you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly. I'm skipping a few stanzas. You've thrown the worst fear that can ever be hurled, fear to bring children into the world, for threatening my baby, unborn and unnamed. You ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins. Let me ask you one question. Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find when death takes its toll, all the money you made 
will never buy back your soul. All right, and that was a clip of Howard Zinn from Artists in a Time of War, which is an excellent album. And I played on the show uh, many years ago, and still so resonant. And I will possibly be playing a little bit more throughout the program. And before that, we we heard... We heard Peter Tosh with No Nuclear War, and before that, Waves by Portugal the Man. And before that, we heard uh, You Should Have Killed Me Last Year by Ice-T. I've mostly been listening to what I was playing, so I haven't really set up too much else. I did find Sir No Sir, which I highly recommend folks check out, and it's on YouTube for free. So if you check out Sir No Sir, the 2005 documentary, you can watch it. And I'm going to play a little bit right now. I feel like doing a lot of listening today. Because, um, of course, a lot of what I want to say has already been said by so many people in the past. People have been saying it for generations. And why not highlight and amplify their voices? So I'll mostly be doing that throughout the program. If I come across some of the other stories I wanted to share, I will get to that. And thanks so much for tuning in. In the early 1960s, the United States government began sending combat troops to South Vietnam. If this little nation goes down the drain and can't maintain her independence, ask yourself what's going to happen to all the other little nations. America's stated goal was to spread democracy and defend freedom. But 30 years later, the legacy of that 10-year war, which left 50,000 Americans and over 3 million Vietnamese dead, still remains unsettled. And in the decades of debate that followed the end of the war, some stories have yet to be heard. Today, your soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guardmen are better educated than before, are better informed, have traditional American ingenuity and initiative, are better physical specimens, have high morale, and understand what the war is all about. understand that I like being a Green Beret. I thought it was good. When I did go in the military, I went in there gun-ho. In basic training, you have this 500 points that you score. I scored like 501 or something. <laughs> you know, I was really, you know, ready. I tried to spend my whole life having people live a better life and basically feel better. That's what nurses do, right? They tried to turn me into a killer. They tried to turn me into somebody who would take another life. If there's one thing in my life I feel like that I've accomplished, it's that I I didn't allow that to happen. The president to shake my hand and pen the medal on uh, me. You can say that that was one of the most proudest moments of my life. You know, it took us almost three weeks across the Pacific, and there wasn't too much to do on a troop ship, so we'd sit up on the deck at night and have wraps. And a lot of times it would get to whether we were, what we were going to, whether it was right or wrong. And we'd go back and forth, back and forth, and uh, we'd always end up concluding, well, let's hope we're doing the right thing because that's where we're going. 
During the Vietnam War, an anti-war movement emerged that altered the course of history. This movement didn't take place on college campuses, but in barracks and on ships. It flourished in army stockades, navy brigs, and the dingy towns that surrounded military bases. It penetrated elite military colleges like West Point, and it spread throughout the battlefields of Vietnam. It was a movement no one expected, least of all those in it. Hundreds went to prison and thousands into exile, and by 1971 it had, in the words of one colonel, infested the entire armed services. Yet today, few people know about the GI movement against the war in Vietnam. And I was really proud of what I thought I was doing. The earliest days of the war planted the seeds for the movement to come, even among the first American troops in Vietnam, the elite Green Berets. The problem I had was realizing that what I was doing was not good. I was doing it right, but I wasn't doing right. I was asked to train Green Beret people, Special Forces men. Why were they training these guys to, in dermatology? Well, they were training them uh, to do dermatology in Vietnam because they knew that if they were able to offer a few simple remedies and help cure a few children of some simple bacterial infections, uh, that that would uh, ingratiate themselves to the Vietnamese community. And, you know, you remember the phrase, the winning the hearts and minds of the people. So this was, this was how you were going to win the hearts and minds of the people. And while they were offering the Band-Aids of uh, helping to cure a few cases of impetigo, uh, they were bombing the hell out of the villages. I was out on a patrol uh, near Hipwa, and uh, uh, we took a couple of prisoners, I, whether they were combatants or not, who knows. The patrol was led by Americans, but they were Vietnamese. Arvin there, and uh, they were turned over to Arvin, and Arvin used the old-fashioned methods of interrogation, force, torture. That was pretty common practice. I tell you, as bad as, the, as bad as that treatment was, the cynicism that attached to it was the part that was really sickening, I thought. And that's about everything I've been taught, everything I learned, everything I grew up with. This is just not the way you treat human beings. And it was all done for the, the good of the cause, I guess. I got out of the military in 1966. I got out because of the things I saw, the things I was doing, and the th reasons that we were given for doing them. It was a personal protest. It was just me getting out of the service. I, there was no movement to join. I found the war in Vietnam uh, more and more repulsive, and I felt that I just couldn't be a part of it. Eventually, I uh, said, look, I'm not training you guys anymore. Uh, I don't agree with what you're doing. I think it's immoral. I think it's medically unethical. And I just stopped, threw him out of the clinic. Uh, uh, it took a few weeks for the Army to catch up with that. Uh, and when they did, they invited me into the commanding officer's office and said, look, what are you doing here? And I told them exactly what I was doing. I said, I'm not training him. And they said, well, you know, you, you, you should know the consequences of that. And I said, I'm perfectly aware of the consequences of it. I'm not training him. At that point, uh, it was obvious that I was going to be court-martialed. And a few days later, I got the court-martial notice. Howard Levy spent three years in prison. Along with him, three GIs at Fort Hood who refused orders to Vietnam and received five years hard labor and a dishonorable discharge. Army Lieutenant Henry Howe, who carried a sign at a demonstration reading, N. Johnson's fascist aggression in Vietnam was sentenced to two years. And two Marines, 
William Harvey and George Daniel received six to ten year sentences for organizing a meeting about whether black people should fight in Vietnam. And on March 3rd, 1966, former Green Beret Donald Duncan was the featured speaker at an anti-war meeting at the town hall in Manhattan. I just wanted to do what I knew about it and let, let people then judge for themselves. I think the most startling thing to me occurred, however, as the court-martial began. What would happen was we would walk uh, from the parking lot to the uh, building where the court-martial was being held, and it was the most remarkable thing when hundreds, hundreds of GIs would hang out of windows, out of the barracks, and give me the V sign or give me the clenched fist. This was mind-boggling to me. This was a revelation. And at that point, it really became crystal clear to me that something had changed here and that something very, very important was happening. How many people in the Army would you think feel the same way, perhaps, as you do are against the war? I wouldn't mention, I really don't know how many, but I know how many I met, and that was a majority of the men that I met in the service were opposed, but really didn't know how to voice their opinion. Have you given much thought to the penalty of being a AWOL? Yes. 1968 was the turning point. By then, America had over a half a million troops in South Vietnam. But during the Lunar New Year holiday called Tet, the enemy, the North Vietnamese and National Liberation Front armies, launched an offensive that overran the entire country before being pushed back. The Tet Offensive revealed that the enemy had widespread support from the Vietnamese people, and America was mired in a war it couldn't win. And with soldiers beginning to question the war in the wake of the Tet Offensive, thousands began going AWOL or absent without leave. Many found their way to San Francisco, where a series of events brought the emerging GI anti-war movement onto the national stage. We joined together in July 1968. We took sanctuary in a church and chained ourselves to ministers. We essentially called the press and said to them, we're not going to Vietnam. We're refusing our orders and in fact we're resigning from the military to come and get us. The fact that it took them three days to decide how to deal with this tactically, that was great. They had nothing to lose. And it had no idea what was going to come. And that's a free place. It's a really free place, you know? You, you, <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen, you know where you're going, but you know what you're doing. And that was my introduction to the uh, San Francisco Presidio Stockade. The population fluctuated, usually upwards. It was built, I think, and could hold like maybe 60. And there was uh, sometimes double that in there. Uh, overcrowded, toilets backed up, uh, food was short, guards were mean. That was, wasn't any fun. With the nine for peace held in military prisons, soldiers throughout the Bay Area began planning for the first anti-war demonstration in the country organized by GIs and veterans. I was an, a member of the Medical Committee for Human Rights. We got together a number of times and talked about how we were going to organize active duty GIs to go to the peace demonstration. 
And then I remember also hearing about the B-52 bombers that were dropping leaflets on Vietnam, urging the Vietnamese to defect. And I thought, well, if they can do it overseas, then we can hire a small private plane, load it up with leaflets, and drop the leaflets on military bases in the San Francisco Bay Area. Thousands and thousands of leaflets. At one point, I know we were a little concerned about getting shot down, but nothing happened. Evidently, they landed pretty accurately. That's what they testified at the court-martial. And on my way driving into the demonstration, I decided I was going to wear my naval uniform. And my opinion was fairly straightforward. It was if Westmoreland could wear his uniform, being for the war and talking in front of Congress, then as an active duty person, I certainly had the same rights that he did, and I could wear my uniform protesting the United States involvement in Vietnam. Susan Schnall was court-martialed by the Navy for making a political statement while in uniform. And following the march, four AWOL GIs turned themselves into the Presidio Army Stockade, where Keith Mather was being held. So um, I'd been assigned kind of by the movement people to go into the stockade and find out what was going on because they had, they had shot this prisoner and killed him. For 19-year-old Private Michael Bunch, life in the Army had been a little more than a series of AWOL violations. His last stop was here, the Presidio Stockade, where he was fatally shot last Friday while trying to escape from a work detail. But the guard shot him and killed him, you know, point blank. And his only crime was uh, not wanting to be there and um, going AWOL. And cut, he was cut down at a real young age and uh, for no good reason. Not unlike a lot of his brothers uh, in Vietnam, you know. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> so we reacted uh, viscerally and uh, with anger and disgust and outrage. We tore that jail apart. We ripped the wires out of the walls. We ripped the squawk box off the wall. And then things started to calm down because we started to plan. We came to a decision that the best thing we could do was to have some kind of a demonstration. And it was at the roll call formation we had a signal, and that was when we were supposed to break ranks, and we did. And then we walked over here and sat down. At a certain point, Commandant came out and read us uh, the Mutiny Act, and we just kept singing louder and you know, kind of linked arms and sing and sing. We were scared, man. I'll tell you, we were really scared. We had them right where we want them. They were finally listening to us, man. That's the first time I can ever remember anybody listening to us while I was in the military. The commanding general of the 6th Army, which was the jurisdiction, and he said that they thought that the revolution was about to start and that they really had to set an example, you know, come down hard, and we were the guys that they decided to do that with. And they did. I mean, we, you know, we were on trial for our life. You know, I kind of came in as an AWOL, and, uh, you know, within two days of hitting the stockade, I was, uh, you know, I was facing the death sentence <laughs> for saying that we should overcome. Nationwide support for the Presidio 27 grew, the GI movement had arrived. All right, and welcome back. That was the first 
14-ish minutes of Sir No Sir, which is a documentary that came out in 2005. You can stream it for free on YouTube. There's also the DVD available at the San Francisco Public Library. I'd imagine other public libraries where you are. And I believe there's extra footage on there. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm going to check it out. So there's so much to get to. And I also... There's also so much that we don't know, and that I feel like that's been a common recurring theme on this show that I think I've maybe even more recently just become so aware of just how much misinformation is taught, how much propaganda there is growing up in this country, and really wanting to seek out the truth and a people's history, and also questioning the powers that be and their actions and how not only do they control the narrative, but they control a lot of just the behind the scenes. And if we don't know what's actually happening, it's difficult to form an opinion and then to take action. And then also just to make sense of everything. So someone did post this, which was from NPR, which I know some folks have, I I would imagine that folks can criticize almost anything. And there, I don't know how else to say it. So I appreciate some stuff NPR does and also I'm critical of others. And I think it's also just crucial to, of course, question what we hear. And this was posted last, early last year in February from NPR, uh, how the CIA overthrew Iran's democracy in four days. And there's a lot that I, I don't know, so I will be also listening to this just to share for, share, is that the right word? I don't know, perhaps. To educate myself a little bit more, a lot more. And hopefully also just to contextualize how the U.S. has constantly gone abroad and just fucked things up and caused a lot of harm. And that's no different than what's happening right now. So you can find this at npr.org. It's about 38 minutes. I'm not sure how much of it I'll play. I might play all of it. We do have the time. Or maybe I'll play a little bit of it. And if you're interested, you can hear more. So again, if you go to NPR and then type in the CIA, how the CIA overthrew Iran's democracy in four days, and this talks about August of 1953 when the U.S. overthrew Iran's democratically elected prime minister, and it's this is through NPR's, uh, they have a history podcast called Throughline. So I'll be playing this for a bit, and we'll be back uh, perhaps with some music afterwards. Hey there, Up First listeners. It is Saturday, not a weekday, and we've got a bonus episode for you today. This month marks the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution, which led to the overthrow of Iran's head of state, the Shah, a hostage crisis at the American embassy, and Iran becoming an Islamic Republic. It is cited as the year Iran and the United States became enemies, but that animosity actually has earlier roots. In this episode of Throughline, a new history podcast from NPR, hosts Ramtin Arablouei and Rund Abdel Fattah explore the U.S.'s role in the 1953 coup in Iran. August 15, 1953. Shortly before midnight in Tehran, Iran's capital city, the air was thick with anticipation. Something big was about to happen. The elected prime minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, was sitting at home, waiting. He knew something was coming. And he had no idea if he'd still be prime minister by morning. So with each tick, tick, tick of the clock, he knew that the future of Iran was at stake. One truckload of presidential guard soldiers 
We're going to Mossadegh's house at midnight. Their mission was simple. Go to Mossadegh's house in the middle of the night. Knock on the door. Tell him he's fired. Mossadegh would then protest, undoubtedly, and say, you can't fire me, I'm elected. And at that point, you would arrest him. That failed because Mossadegh found out about the arrest. News of it leaked out. Then uh, there was a bit of panic among the army that was supposed to come out and support the arrest of Mossadegh. The phone lines were supposed to be cut. They were not cut. So there were a number of missteps that took place. And when the soldiers arrived at Mossadegh's house to arrest him, other soldiers jumped out of the woods and arrested those guys. Mossadegh's forces had foiled the coup attempt. He would stay prime minister. But little did he know, that night was just the beginning of a much bigger battle to come. And it would change the future of Iran and America. Iran's British-hating Premier Mossadegh arrived in Cairo. Where Former Premier Mossadegh's ruined house is a mute testimony to three days of bloody rioting culminating in a military fury at the force. For the first time now, the CIA has released documents that show its role in the 1953 coup. You're listening to Throughline, where we go back in time to understand the present. Hey, I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Rand Abdel Fattah. And welcome to the first episode of Throughline. I'm not going to lie. I'm still a little bit shocked that they gave us a show. <laughs> I know. I can't believe we're here. <laughs> but we're really excited and really glad that you decided to join us for this ride. Yeah. Because Ramtin and I have been talking about this for a while. Um, like a lot of you, we're news junkies. And we were just pretty frustrated with the lack of historical context around a lot of the headlines we were reading. And we would end up in these Wikipedia wormholes trying to figure out the history behind things. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to create a show where you, the listeners, and us could go on this journey every single week and become better informed about the world around us. And do it in a way that wasn't boring. <laughs> yes, exactly. So in this first episode, we're going to take you to Iran and the story of four days in 1953. All right, Ramtin, you were born in Iran and you've spent a bunch of time there. So I'm curious, how much had you heard about this American coup growing up? I definitely heard stuff about it, um, especially from my father, um, who would remind me all the time, like, the only reason we're here in the U.S. is because what the U.S. did to our democracy in 1953, right? And um, I would always just kind of, like, brush it off, like, whatever, that couldn't have happened. It's just, just like Iranian conspiracy theory stuff, right? But as I grew up, I realized the U.S. actually did interfere in Iran's politics in 1953. I'm going to be honest, like, I didn't have much of an idea about this going into the episode. And it's like a, a really big, shocking thing to not have much of an idea about. Um, because I always thought that 1979 was the real pivotal moment, right? Mm -hmm. That the Iranian revolution that happened that year and the hostage crisis at the American embassy, those were the things that really set the tone for like this very tense relationship between the U.S. and Iran. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like, why would you or any other American think differently, right? Because 1979 was such an important year. But 1953 is really when it all goes down. Doesn't it suck that your dad was right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really does. It does. Okay, I want to get into it. It's a great story. So we're going to take you back to that pivotal moment more than 65 years ago to understand what happened during the coup. Why the U.S. made that decision. And how this event redefined the U.S.-Iran relationship and changed the world. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover, who believes innovation and good ideas can come okay. from anywhere. I'm Discover gonna, uh, is one of the silence it while uh, it's playing ads. That's that's all right. Again, we're listening to uh, NPR: How the CIA Overthrew Iran's Democracy in Four Days, and I'll I'll do a little plug for the radio station while they're doing a plug for theirs. Mutiny Radio, twenty first in Florida, and the mission. We get by on dues and donations. Please Venmo us at Mutiny Radio. If you want to support this show in particular, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. I appreciate all the folks out there who have been donating over the years. Uh, I have a lot of passion about this show and think it's really important. So if you're able to donate a buck or two, you can also Venmo me, Roman Reimer, and that's R O M A N dash R I M E R. Follow me on Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. And similar to this show, I mostly retweet and share a variety of sources and spread the word. So thanks so much for tuning in. And the mood was electric. Music blasting, booze flowing, everyone celebrating a job well done. Now, remember, this is 1953. So there were no breaking news alerts, no email, no good way to deliver information fast. So as far as these guys knew, the coup had gone off without a hitch. And there was one guy who was especially happy, Kermit Roosevelt. So Kermit Roosevelt uh, was chief of the CIA's Near East and Africa division. Like many of the figures in the early CIA, he had been born into privilege, gone to Ivy League schools. His grandfather had been Theodore Roosevelt. Distant relative of FDR as well. He was called in to help facilitate this transition. So, on July 19th, 1953, Kermit Roosevelt crossed over into Iran. This is Stephen Kinzer. He wrote a groundbreaking book on this coup called... All the Shah's Men, and Sanam back here. Oh, okay, now you can hear me. Hello. A research fellow at Chatham House in London, where she leads the Iran Forum Project. And they were our guides through this story. Okay, so Kermit Roosevelt entered Iran on July 19th, with a pretty big mission ahead of him. Stage a coup to get rid of Iran's prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. And we'll explain why in a bit. But the first question Roosevelt had to answer... I've asked myself this question. ...was how. So you're sent into a foreign country and your assignment is overthrow the government. What do you do? Like, what do you do on the first day? Nine o'clock, you get to the office. How do you start? Even though the CIA had devised a plan for Roosevelt, no one was sure it would actually work. It was suddenly up to Roosevelt to destabilize a whole country. Step one. Seize control of the Iranian press. Basically buy them off with bribes. Turned out that the press uh, was quite corrupt. And soon enough, Roosevelt had columnists, editors, and reporters from most of Iran's newspapers on his payroll. Then... Anti-Mossadegh propaganda began printing everywhere. Mossadegh was a Jew, a homosexual, a British agent, anything that they thought would uh, would outrage people. There was such an appetite for these stories that Iranian journalists just couldn't keep up. So Roosevelt had to recruit CIA agents back in Washington to write some of the articles for the Iranian press. In fact, one of them later wrote a memoir, and he talked about how bizarre it was At the CIA, you had the people plotting the Iran coup, and then you had analysts on the other side who weren't aware of the covert action. And he said, I would write an article about how Mossadegh was an atheist and he hated God. And uh, then a couple of days later, 
a guy from the other side of the hall in the analysis division would run over to my office holding up an Iranian newspaper and saying, wow, you won't believe how the newspapers in Iran are denouncing Mossadegh. Look what this article. And I couldn't tell him I wrote that article. Step two, recruit allies on the ground. Most importantly, the Islamic clergy, or mullahs, who held a lot of power in Iran. Kermit Roosevelt made strategic payments to a number of important mullahs uh, in exchange for them delivering sermons denouncing Mossadegh from the pulpit as against God and irreligious. Step three, get Iran's king, the Shah, on board. And uh, convince the Iranian Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, that Mossadegh was a threat. This part took some persuading, though. Yeah, because in theory, at least, the Shah and the prime minister were meant to work together. But there was a lot of tension between them, because for decades, Iran's parliament and Shah had a tough time sharing power. It would be a big deal for the Shah to help overthrow the prime minister. But Roosevelt saw an opening to turn them against each other. That included bribing the Shah's sister in exchange for her help convincing the Shah to sign on. And there are reports that a fur coat was even part of the deal. But that tactic failed. Eventually, Roosevelt took matters into his own hands and began meeting with the Shah almost every day, at midnight, in a taxi cab, always in a different location. During these late-night meetings, Roosevelt managed to convince the Shah that Mossadegh was a threat, and so the Shah agreed to the coup. And finally, step four, go to Mossadegh's house in the middle of the night, arrest him, and consolidate power in the hands of the Shah, who was more friendly towards the West than Mossadegh. But remember, the coup attempt failed. At this point, you're probably wondering why the U.S. went to all this trouble, sending Roosevelt to Iran, having him stir up chaos in the country, and ultimately trying to carry out a coup. Why were they so hellbent on getting Mossadegh out of power? Well, the truth is, the U.S. was dragged into the situation by Great Britain, all because of one thing. A fifth of the world's oil supply was cut off, and nationalist feeling ran high against Britain and the Western democracies. We sometimes say that countries are blessed with resources, but... Sometimes resources can be a curse, particularly if you're a country that's weak, because there are always strong countries that want to come and take what you have. And Iran was cursed with a lot of oil. Oil was discovered there in 1908, and almost immediately, Great Britain took an interest. And at that time, Britain was the world's biggest superpower, so they decided to strike a deal with the Iranian Shah, and they needed a lot of oil. This deal between the British and Iran was completely one-sided. Uh, Great Britain was taking well over 80% of the revenues while Iran was receiving about 10 to 12% of the revenues from its natural resource. Wait, wait. A deal like that makes no sense, though. Why did Iran agree to that? Well, yeah, it makes no sense unless you're in desperate need of money. Hmm. And Iran's government in the early 20th century was desperate. Iran, during the early part of the 20th century, was still ruled by the old Qajar royal dynasty. This was a very corrupt dynasty, and it supported itself by selling off anything of value in Iran. They sold off the transportation industry, the tobacco industry, the caviar fisheries. They even sold off the country's treasury and banking industries. It was basically a free-for-all, and the British were first in line. Oil was by far their most valuable acquisition. And here's a fun fact. The company that controlled all of that oil was originally called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which would later become... Every day, 
BP supplies the fuel and BP. lubricants that start the engine. Oh, British Petroleum. Yeah. So this was obviously very lucrative for them. Very lucrative. And during World War I and II, Iranian oil pumped life into the British war effort. So it was absolutely essential to Britain's future. Okay, this all really helps explain the next part of the story, right? Because before he's even prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh got to work lobbying against this unfair oil deal, hoping to get a better deal for Iran. He tried to negotiate a new deal with the British that would allow Iran to keep a bigger share of the profits. Which I'm sure freaked out the British. And when negotiations broke down, the British imposed a worldwide embargo on Iranian oil. Eventually, in 1951, Mossadegh convinced the Iranian parliament to nationalize Iran's oil. And a month later, he was elected prime minister, which really sent the British to the roof. Premier Mossadegh, spearhead of the oil nationalization program, took his case to the United Nations, where he remained adamant in his So the British decided that the, the only solution was to get rid of Mossadegh and put in a more favorable government. And Mossadegh, sensing the British were up to something, shut down their embassy in Iran. And here's where I'm assuming the U.S. enters the picture, right? Right. So they called the Americans for help. And President Truman said no. He's not going to do it. He actually sent a, a mediator to Iran. He had Mossadegh come to Washington to try to persuade him. But when nothing worked, he essentially told the British, there's nothing you can do. You're going to have to swallow this. Like, we had to swallow Mexico, nationalizing its oil industry in the 30s. We didn't like it. You're just going to have to live with this. But the following year, Dwight Eisenhower became president. And his thinking was a little different. Suddenly, you don't have an American president who forbids military action. But on the contrary, you have a new team that's eager to show that it's going to roll back threats to the United States. And that played right into the British hands. Plus, this was right around the time when the Cold War was heating up. And Iran happened to share a border with the Soviet Union. So what can he do to show that he's fighting communism? Well, he can't bomb Moscow. He's not going to invade China. You can't go after the real enemy. It's not possible. So you have to go after somebody else. Iran also, in this period, and I think it's important to mention, there was a communist party known as the Tudeh that um, was active in parliament, was supporting Mossadegh. And even though, by all accounts, Mossadegh was not a communist himself, the U.S. was still on high alert. So all these factors... A, the British want us to do ...eventually convinced the U.S. B, Mossadegh is threatening the world economic... ...to get on board with Britain's plan. C, we're desperate for a victory. ...to stage a coup and overthrow Iran's prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. And yet before this evening is over, you might give me the brush. You might forget... At 6 a.m. the morning after the coup attempt, Roosevelt and his men, tired from a night of partying tuned into the radio. But all they heard was silence. And Roosevelt knew something had gone wrong. Then suddenly, the radio crackled on. Military music started playing. And Mossadegh announced victory over an attempted coup. He noticed that the Shah was nowhere to be found and immediately suspected that the Shah was behind the coup attempt. Meanwhile, the Shah knew this might happen and, fearing Mossadegh would come after him, hopped on his private plane and flew to Baghdad. And from there, he went on to Rome, where he told reporters 
I'm probably going to have to look for work now because I'm obviously never going to be able to go back to Iran. So to recap, at the end of day two, the Shah had left Iran, Mossadegh was still in power with no idea that the U.S. was behind the coup attempt, and Roosevelt had failed. But even though his bosses back in Washington told him he could go home after the coup failed. Kermit Roosevelt was not willing to give up that easily. I think it came a little bit from the old uh, CIA can-do mentality. I think he also sensed how weak the Iranian political establishment was. Uh, He thought he still had assets that he hadn't used. Mossadegh wasn't out of the woods just yet. Kermit Roosevelt had not given up and was actually was having a plan B. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI. Okay. Wow. A lot of stuff I did not know at all. So again, we're playing how the CIA overthrew... (coughs) Excuse me. My. Mm. How the CIA overthrew Iran's democracy in four days. This is from NPR, and it came out on February 9th, 2019. You can find it on their website. Or wherever you listen to podcasts. August 17th, 1953. A couple days after the failed coup attempt, crowds of supporters packed the streets, chanting the words, Mossadegh has won, and victory to the nation. It seemed like the worst was behind Mossadegh. He survived a coup attempt and lived to tell the tale. But this was the calm before the storm. Backroom dealings were happening out of sight, and the threat to Mossadegh was still very real. And we'll get to that. But during this momentary calm, we want to give you some insight into the man who was at the center of this whole thing, the man the U.S. and Britain were terrified of, Mohammad Mossadegh. You get the feeling that this is a kind, fatherly person who cares about the people. And he's very respectful of people. He talks to people with respect for the first time. That an Iranian politician would address them as dear fellow citizen. This is Dr. Ibrahim Noruzi. I'm a retired physician. Dr. Noruzi was born in 1942 in a town in Iran called Qazvin. And he's a Mossadegh superfan. He even created a website to honor him. Dr. Noruzi became very interested in politics from a young age. Uh, I have no idea exactly why, because we didn't even have radio in our house when I was a kid, you know, when I was in elementary school. Uh, maybe I was very tiny and I was bullied a lot. Maybe so I, I wanted some sort of justice in the world. Dr. Noruzi, like a lot of Iranians, sees Mossadegh as kind of a national hero, a sort of Gandhi for Iran. He's really become a mythical figure. But to really understand Mossadegh, we have to find the man behind the myth. So Mohammad Mossadegh was an Iranian aristocrat. Again, Stephen Kinzer. His father had been finance minister for decades under the Qajar regime. His mother was a princess. He held various positions. That's Sanam Bakil. Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Finance, elected twice to the Iranian parliament. Uh, he went off to be educated in Europe. He came home and began campaigning against the agreement by which the British were trying to subjugate Iran. 
and became quite outraged at the injustices he saw around him. And Mossadegh was known to be very dramatic. Um, there are these anecdotes uh, where he used to receive visitors in his bed, in his pajamas, for example. Mossadegh was a pretty eccentric guy, prone to outbursts and dramatic speeches where he would cry, even pass out. And the U.S. and Britain saw him as kind of erratic and unreliable, difficult to negotiate with, even if he was a fan of democratic ideas. Very much believed in the democratic ideals and checks and balances that were necessary to curtail monarchical power at the time. And he came of age during a time where these changes also influenced the political system. The biggest political change he witnessed happened when Mossadegh was in his 20s. Between 1905 and 1911, Iran went through a constitutional revolution. This was a remarkable moment in Middle Eastern history and in the history of the developing world. Iran developed a constitution in 1906. There are countries in the Middle East that don't even have a constitution today. The revolution sought to make Iran more democratic with things like a parliament, a constitution, and a free press. See, for centuries, the country had been ruled by shahs, or kings, with power passing from fathers to sons. But by the turn of the 20th century... By the turn of the 20th century, the corrupt, irresponsible business dealings of the shahs were driving the Iranian economy straight into the ground, which made the shahs really unpopular among the people. And this wasn't like normal corruption. We're talking crazy, excessive spending. Yeah, like one shah had a harem of 1,600 people. 1,600? 1,600. And he and his many, many sons would use the national treasury as their personal piggy bank, taking money out whenever, you know, they wanted to travel around Europe. He also demanded that people call him one of the following names. Shah and Shah. Shah of Shahs. Asylum of the Universe. Buzurj. Subduer of climate. Guardian of the flock. Or shadow of God on earth. <laughs> I could see you wanting to be called guardian of the flock. <laughs> I, or honestly, would you prefer shadow of God on earth? I, I, I personally like subduer of climate. That, that just that feels, mean? I don't know, but it just feels we like need a, a subduer very, of climate we actually, right now. <laughs> we do need one right now. You're right. Anyway, point is, the Shahs were out of control. And the Constitutional Revolution united people across Iran against the Shah in favor of a more representative government. A coalition, if you will, of intellectuals, people from the bazaar, the clergy. When that coalition stood up to the monarchy, violence broke out. And one of the most interesting stories that I came across, Ramtin, that I don't think I've told you about yet, was the story of this American guy who actually fought in Iran's Constitutional Revolution. What? Really? Yeah. His name was... Howard Baskerville. Howard Baskerville. Who was a graduate of Princeton University Seminary School. Baskerville was an American missionary. And in this period, there was a lot of missionary activity coming from the United States. They would support education in various countries throughout the Middle East. He came to Iran and he identified with their plight. And Baskerville wanted to go and fight. On the side of the constitutionalists? Exactly. But the U.S. representative in Iran begged Baskerville not to join the fight. He came to him and yelled at him, no, you can't do that, you know. You shouldn't get involved in civil war of other countries. You came here to help, you know. But he wouldn't listen. And then he threatened him that if you go and involve yourself in the war, I take away your passport. He said, okay, this is my passport. He threw it at him. He said, no, I, just because I was born in America, that doesn't mean I'm better than them. I'm like them. I'm going to fight for them, for their cause, and I, this is a good cause. Unfortunately, he dies just the first hour of a battle. 
And by the way, Baskerville, his sculpture was installed in Constitutional Hall in Tabriz, and his tomb is like a uh, worship place. So Iranian extrapolated these missionaries' uh, action to America as a government. So what I'm, I'm saying is that American left a very good impression in Iran. Iranians loved it. I had never heard of this guy, Howard Baskerville. Neither had I before this. I mean, it's really wild to think that this guy would have laid down his life for Iran's constitutional revolution. Like, think about it. How many Americans at that time even knew where Iran was, let alone go over there and fight? Right. And it's interesting because at that time, Britain and the Shah were the bad guys, but America Mm -hmm. was kind of an ally in their fight. Yeah, exactly. Until they got involved. In the days after the coup attempt, however, all that seemed to matter was that Mossadegh was a man of the people and that he was still in power. But out of sight, a new plot against Mossadegh was brewing. Kermit Roosevelt's Plan B. take a little bit of a break, uh, shift things up a bit, and wanted to go back to Howard Zinn. (sighs) Excuse me. Artists in the Time of War, which you can find online. I'm going to play another selection from this. The first piece we played was called speaking out and next we're gonna go to uh the artist and society hundreds and hundreds well, of rioters filled the I have never of Tehran talked and in a word about this topic I won't say I've never talked <laughs> but I've never talked about this topic you know the art and society of course I've thought about it my wife is a painter I have artist friends, some of my best friends are artists. Some of them are here, observing me. Uh, But as I say, yeah, I've thought about it, of course, all of us have. And uh, and what comes to mind when I think of the, you know, the relationship of the artist to society, what should be the relationship of the artist to society. And with me, it's always a question of what should be and not what is. But I think of the word transcendent, which is a word I've never used in public. (laughs) (laughs) But it was the only thing I could come up with to describe uh, what I think about the role of the artist. And by that I mean, you know, not, you know, Immanuel Kant's, well, yes, sort of close to it, but not really <laughs> his idea of what is transcendent, something like it. But the, the idea is that the artist transcends the immediate, uh, transcends the here and now. The artist, well, transcends the madness of the world, transcends the madness of terrorism, transcends the madness of war. And uh, the artist thinks outside the framework 
and acts and paints and does music and writes outside the framework that society has, has created. And, and the artist may do s no more than, and I don't mean to minimize it by saying no more than, the artist may do more than you know, give us uh, beauty and laughter, uh, passion, surprise, drama. And that's, that's good. Uh, that is, the artist needn't apologize for just doing that, because in doing that, the, the artist is telling us what the world should be like, even if it isn't that way now. And the artist is, is taking us away from the moments of horror that we experience every day in this world, some days more than others, and, and showing us something else, showing us what is possible. There's no need for an artist to apologize about just giving us something that is passionate and beautiful and funny or any of those. No, no need to apologize for that. Yeah. But. All right, so that was The Artist and Society from Howard Zinn from Artists in a Time of War. I'm going to put together a few other things here for, for, for the remainder of the program. Again, there's so much to get to. I do want to listen to the rest of the NPR piece on Iran, and hopefully at least one of the things I've shared today will hopefully, yeah, uh, help educate. I know it's helped educate myself as a reminder, even though I've heard some of these things before, it's a good reminder of that the majority of people are against war. And I also wanted to get to some local news. I've been following the Moms for Housing, which you can follow online uh, on Twitter, at Moms, the number four housing. And it's a group of mothers who are unhoused who found a vacant home and have been living in there as they should. And the property company has been trying to evict them. However, many folks have been coming to the defense and showing up uh, with these families and you can follow more and also donate to them, Moms for Housing. And there's a video clip that they shared on Twitter, which I'm going to share right now. So I'm just going to get everything all set up here. And they um, posted this. Uh, this is through Bypass underscore TV. And uh, this is uh, Talani King, one of the co-founders of Moms for Housing. She speaks on the pain that thousands of homeless mothers around the country and around the world are going through every day, invisible, unheard, and ignored. You can uh, watch, listen, and share this. Hashtag housing now. Hard. I feed my community weekly. I sacrifice my life for people. And this city, this country, has not sacrificed anything for me. So I will take it. Say that. I'm at the point of taking Say what it. I need. People died for us to be at this point and we are slipping backwards. Struggling, still struggling. Yeah. This has troubled my life. This has not just touched me. This has troubled my life. I am someone. I deserve yes. a house yes. to live in. Yes. Yes. I deserve yes. a place to grow up. I deserve this. This is not something that I want. This is not something I desire. This is what I deserve. 
All right. So again, this is from the Moms for Housing. You can follow them at Moms for Housing on Twitter, and they also have a website as well. And there's some more speakers here, so I'm going to continue sharing these uh, videos here. And this is again shared by uh, through Bypass TV, which is at Bypass underscore TV on Twitter. And this was shared on December 31st, 2019. They are trying to present themselves as the David in this David and Goliath fight. And the speaker is Carol Fife from uh, ACCE. We say no. No. The billionaires. The billionaires, the banks, the hedge fund companies, these corporations that come in here and profit off the misery that they help cause are not David. Goliath, the ones that are oppressing these families and these mothers directly and indirectly are being fought right now. Not just by you all and people who come out here, but also by these mothers who, yes, are courageous freedom fighters. They have been threatened physically. If you all are on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, you will see how their bodies are being threatened. They've been, they've been threatened with lynchings and shootings and all kinds of violence. That is just one aspect of the violence. But another is having to not know what your next day will be because you don't know where your children will lay their heads. Just last night, these babies put their... These babies put this bedroom together with sheets and pillows and blankets and art that they designed. And they thought of every way that they could make this house even more a home for them. This is an example of what it means to be secure and not have to worry about what your tomorrow will look like. Destiny just did a video talking about being here and looking at these trees and wanting to be the big one because this is the strong one. But identified with the small one as one that's been attempted to be cut down but is still struggling to stand that is still struggling to stay here. What Sam Singer and Wedgwood would have you believe is that these families are the criminals. All right, so this was shared from Bypass underscore TV. And again, that was Carol Fife from ACCE. And I'm gonna look down, there's another video here. Uh, this is uh, Carol Fife, who's the regional director of ACCE and play this video right now. There, there's something corrupt with this system. It is rotten yeah. from the root, yeah. and we are going to dig it out. That's right. Yes. 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 Dig it out. Commend. I commend the three city council members who have stood up and stood with these women to say enough. I will be on the right side of history and legislation with what works for the people not the corporations. Do not buy into this crap that they're trying to sell that somehow these women are wrong. Because if we start today with just an individual 
situation. It's just between these women and this com company. The women are wrong. This is a system. This is about systemic issues. And they are the model for what is wrong with housing in this country and in the world. Speculation just doesn't exist in Oakland. It's just insidious here. The fact that California is why the country is leading in homelessness is something about the system. And I am forever indebted to these women for being courageous enough to step out there to say we will highlight what is wrong with the system. So I implore you to call your elected officials that didn't show up today. And if you want to be clear about who did, I'm going to just tell you who did, who is standing with this, with this movement right now. Council member Nikki Fortunato Bass is a G, is a G. Council member Rebecca Kaplan, Council member Dan Cobb, those are the three. So if I didn't name somebody, they have not stood up to say enough on, uh, on speculation. I will also th say that there are two supporters from the County Board of Supervisors who stepped up to say, Wedgwood, if the moms have an option to buy the house, why won't you talk to them? What are you losing? Okay. So some more clips there from Rally from moms for housing and again you can follow them at moms for housing and i believe there's also there's a uh petition that health workers can sign i'm going to pull that up now as well so give me just a moment and yes so um this was shared by uh, rupa maria md and there's a it's a Google Google Doc, and I believe I've shared it on Twitter, so I'll share it there again. And also, the Coalition on Homelessness has shared it, so I will share that once more. And uh, might take me a moment though. However, if you follow Coalition on Homelessness and you go to there, this might be the easier way to find it. To Coalition on Homelessness, follow them, and you can follow them if you don't already at the at the coalition sf and on january 1st they shared this calling all nurses doctors surgeons emts pas health educators public health community stand in solidarity with at moms for housing and sign and share this letter housing is healthcare. so they provide a link it's a google doc that you can sign so please if you are a health healthcare worker and or you know healthcare workers as i imagine most of us do please do spread the word all right i'm gonna wrap up the show here I'll do one more uh, anti-war song and then a couple B-52 songs. And thanks again so much for listening. Do appreciate it. And, huh, yes. So, going to move along here. And, again, um, going back to go over the a few things I shared today. How the CIA overthrew Iran's democracy in four days. I played the first part of that. That's from NPR. And it came out on February 9th. 2019 also played the first 14 minutes of the documentary sir no sir which is the gi movement against fighting in vietnam that came out in 2005 you can find that on youtube and also played selections from howard's in artists in a time of war you can find that also on youtube and there's also the cd of it that you can purchase as well <sighs> okay so i'm gonna end this uh or not end it 
Next up will be uh, Saul Williams with Not In Our Name, The Pledge of Resistance. And then I'll play some B-52s from their debut album. So thanks again so much for listening, and I'll be back next week. The greatest Americans have not been born yet. They are waiting patiently for the past to die. Please give blood, George Bush. Please give blood, Ashcroft. Please give blood, Catholic priests in Boston and elsewhere. Please give blood so that the beings in waiting will find their way into the wombs of warrior women. Not in our name, the pledge to resist. We believe that as a people living in the United States, it is our responsibility to resist the injustices done by our government in our names. Not in our name will you wage endless war. There can be no more deaths, no more transfusions of blood for oil. Not in our name will you invade countries, bomb civilians, kill more children, letting history take its course over the graves of the nameless. Not in our names will you erode the very freedoms you have claimed to fight for. Not by our hands will we supply weapons and funding for the annihilation of families on foreign soil. Not by our mouths will we let fear silence us. Not by our hearts will we allow whole peoples or countries to be deemed evil. Not by our will and not in our name. We pledge resistance. We pledge alliance with those who have undercome attack for voicing opposition to the war or for their religion or ethnicity. We pledge to make common cause with the people of the world to bring about justice, freedom, and peace. Another world is possible, and we pledge to make it real.
Tigers. We fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers. We're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear, too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers. California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP. 180 Carmen Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834.
comfortable. Making sixty-nine gold Cadillac with a white material. And I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Making big splits and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. Good I am a total Hello, Blake. Henry! Yeah, Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch Apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2020 coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. But you can apply now through November 30th. 50 shows in seven days, over 50 comics from all around the U.S., and you could be one of them. Go to the Mutiny Radio website, www.mutinyradio.fm. Click the Apply button. Pay that 20 bucks. Donate to Mutiny Radio and apply with your five-minute video to the Mutiny Radio 5th Annual Comedy Festival coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. Submissions close November 30th. Get those submissions in now. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8 that's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Four ninety nine. 